Um, I had the privilege uh, when I was a college student many years ago to be a part of that kind of a blitz. In fact, um, I can't remember the number of students, but my, my guess is maybe, maybe there were 2,000 students that hit UCLA campus for a week. And it was an incredible thing what happened there. I also had occasion when I had first come to Grace Community Church to be asked to speak on the open forum of uh, Long Beach State and then from there uh, at Valley College. We had a tremendous response there. I spoke on the open forum at Valley College and people threatened uh, my life and they threatened to blow up Grace Church. Uh, the Jewish Defense League got very uptight because I spoke on why Jesus is the Messiah. And we had a tremendous time. And as a result, I was invited to speak at Northridge on the open forum. And this was a big deal in those days. And all the students gathered out there, you know. And, and the whole time I tried to speak and give the gospel, the Jewish Defense League had students ringing the podium, uh, chanting Hava Nagila to try to interrupt the whole thing. Well, it was great because it just made a bigger crowd and a bigger crowd and a bigger crowd. And what an exciting opportunity to be on the front line and have a... You, know, you really don't know what's going to happen, but it's an exciting place to be and to open your mouth and speak for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. We had a wonderful weekend. I was up in San Francisco this weekend preaching. I, I, pre I preached at Valley Church in Cupertino. We had three services on Sunday morning. And what a great time to preach and to represent the Master's College. And on Sunday night, Los Gatos Christian, I don't know how many people they had. They had about 2,000 people inside this auditorium and people standing around the edges in closed-circuit TV and other rooms and uh, just jammed full of people. And it was exciting to be able to introduce the college to them. And uh, it was exciting also to see the young men on our baseball team participate in some games up there. A little bit wet. We're not used to that down here. But we had a great time. And some of the men gave their testimonies on Sunday night and were able to lift up Christ. And it was a wonderful, wonderful time. People are really excited about the college. The questions never end about what we're trying to do here. A great amount of interest, and we're so very thankful. In fact, one of the umpires... Uh, came over to one of our coaches and said, what, what is this Master's College? What do you people promote? Which I thought was an interesting way to phrase the question. The answer is we promote the Lord Jesus Christ. We're really excited about that. I want you to open your Bible this morning with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And I want you to listen very carefully as I share with you from God's Word this morning. Because this is the beginning of what may be a semester-long study of... Matthew 5, 1 through 12. We know this as the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 1 to 12. And I, I really believe this will be, for those of you who are willing to commit your attention to it, a life-changing experience. You only gain from the Word when you bring your attention to it. I'm reminded of the book of Revelation, which begins, Blessed is the one who hears this book, who reads this book and understands it. And I encourage you, as we look into the study of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, and by the way, it's going to go on and on. Every time I have an opportunity to speak, I want to keep working our way through these Beatitudes. But as we do that, I really believe the Lord is going to shape and change our lives together because of the power of these great truths. In fact, I'm convinced that the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7 is the greatest sermon ever preached by our Lord Jesus Christ, which makes it the greatest sermon ever preached by anybody, since his would be the supreme ones. 
It is a masterpiece, and perhaps it'll whet your appetite looking at the first 12 verses to go all the way through the end of chapter 7 and get the whole sermon in mind. Let me read you verses 1 to 12, all right? Matthew 5. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Now, the key word in these verses is the word blessed. It appears nine times. The word blessed could equally be translated happy, only in a profound sense, in a deep sense, not in a superficial sense. The word in the Greek, makarios, a very familiar word in the New Testament is used in one form or another over 50 times. And it speaks of inward happiness. It speaks of a state of satisfaction. It speaks about a satisfied heart. There was a song not long ago, you may have heard it, about a satisfied mind. Well, this is a truly satisfied mind. This is someone who, no matter what is going on on the outside of their life, has a deep sense of contentment. This is someone who, no matter what may be hitting them in terms of the struggles of life, has an abiding peace and a certain joy that is never exposed to the circumstances of life around them. A state, I guess we could say it this way, a state of complete well-being is intended by the word makarios. In fact, who is the one who is truly blessed? Who is the one who is truly blessed? Blessed art thou, says the psalmist. Psalm 119, verse 12, O Lord. God is the one who has a perfect state of well-being. God is perfectly content. God is perfectly satisfied with himself. God has an absolute inner satisfaction. And the only time we can have that is when the life of God dwells in the soul of man. True satisfaction, true peace, True happiness, true blessedness comes when we possess the nature of God, when we become partakers of His blessedness. Now, that may seem a little bit philosophical for you, but you'll work your way through that significance as we look at the Beatitudes today and in the future. Let's put it simply. The concept of blessedness or happiness means an inner life that is fully satisfied. And that means you're not a victim of what's going on around you on the outside. Consequently, we can say that true inner happiness doesn't come from money, the presence of it or absence of it. There are some people, you know, who find happiness in the amassing of money, and there are other people who find happiness in giving away all their money. There are some people who think to be happy you have to be wealthy. There are other people who think to be happy you have to be poor, and they take a vow of what? of poverty. 
There are some people who believe that pleasure is the ultimate happiness, and there have been other people, and still are, who feel that the absence of pleasure is the ultimate happiness. I have met people who literally spend their lives, for example, these are in a devout sort of Roman Catholic orientation, with rocks in their shoes. They will wear shoes, like your shoes and mine, you couldn't tell the difference, but in their shoes are rocks. I have met them who have thumbtacks in their shoes. I have met people who literally wear an undergarment they never change their lifelong. I have met people who have a belt, and inside that belt are little pins, and those pins are reversed against the flesh because they believe that true happiness, true inner satisfaction in life comes from pain. There are people in the Philippines every Easter who crucify themselves. Have you seen them in the newspaper? They really believe that true satisfaction comes from pain. There are other people who believe that true satisfaction comes from the absence of pain. And you're more relating to that, aren't you? Right. I mean, for them, it's, it's being, you know, filled with all the goodies of life and living it to the hilt. There are some people who feel that true happiness is found in worldly success. The, 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 the greater your star in the horizon, the more people know you and recognize you, the more fame you have, the more you can accumulate in terms of prestige or prominence. There are other people who believe that true happiness is found in absolute obscurity, and so they want to go out in a cave somewhere and contemplate their navel, spend all their life trying to find some meaning in isolation. And all of these things, because they're basically dealing with externals, miss the point. What is the key to true happiness? I mean, and I think we can all agree that everybody wants to be happy. Even those people who seek happiness through misery ultimately want to be happy. They only think the misery will get them there. Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to be satisfied. Everybody wants to have an inner contentment, a sense of peace on the inside. A sense that everything in life is well-ordered and in its proper place. How do we find that? Where does that come from? Well, Jesus just told us here nine times about happiness. Nine times about satisfaction. Nine times about blessedness. And this, I believe, is a summation of the true teaching on happiness. If you really want happiness, you must understand these things. Now, let me give you a little bit of a background, all right? Jesus is preaching here to a group of Jewish people. In fact, particularly, he's focusing on the disciples, but there's also a multitude there. It says in verse 1, you notice that. This is a multitude of Jews. Now, Jewish thinking basically embraced uh, a lot of things, but we can sort of simplify it into four categories, right? There were four parties among the Jews, four religious parties, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots. And if we just identify those four, we might get a little idea of, this, of the, the sort of religious demographics of the crowd to which Jesus speaks. Now, the Pharisees believed that true happiness was found in what? Do you know? Basically legalism, right? The Pharisees believed that true happiness was found in keeping all the laws that you could keep in legalism. And so, as a result, they worshipped themselves. They worshipped self. It was their own accomplishment religiously that they really worshipped. The second group were the Sadducees. They were another group, actually a part of the priestly order. And the Sadducees had a different view. They believed that true happiness was found in rationalism. 
If an angel didn't make sense to them, they didn't believe in an angel. If a resurrection didn't make sense to them, they didn't believe in a resurrection. And so rather than worshiping self, they worshiped the mind. And rather than the general idea of self, they worshiped the mind. Their happiness, they thought, was found in rationalism. Then there was a group called the Essenes, and the Essenes uh, were a, a very monastic group. That is to say, they were monkish. They lived out in the desert, and they lived in very bare, minimum kind of comforts of life. They believed that happiness was found in asceticism. Now, asceticism is just a fancy word for self-denial. And so they were the ones who had meager diet and meager resources, and they believed they were pleasing God and attaining true happiness through the absence of things, asceticism. And then there were the zealots. And frankly, the zealots were the political rabble-rousers who believed that happiness was found in terrorism. I mean, their view of life was, let's overthrow Rome. So you sneak up behind a Roman soldier and stick a spear between his shoulder blades. That's happiness. True happiness is massacring Romans. True happiness will be found in nationalism, might be another way to look at it. I mean, if we can just take over our country and get the Roman yoke off us, we'll be fine. Well, here is a society then of people who, some of them believe uh, happiness is in legalism, keeping laws and rituals, ceremonies and routines. Others think it's in rationalism. Others think it's in asceticism. And they, by the way, worship their flesh. And then there were the terrorists who basically worshipped power. And in all of these kinds of things, you have a little bit of a sampler of how it is even today. There are people today who think true happiness is found in certain religious ritual. There are those who think true happiness is found in intellectual pursuit. There are those who think that true happiness is found in, in some kind of fleshly way. Others feel true happiness is found in the amassing of power, whatever. You can see similarities to this. Now, it is to that kind of generation that Jesus speaks about where true happiness is really found, and it isn't in any of those four areas. And what Jesus does is outline a new standard of living where true happiness is found, a new standard of living. And that begins the Beatitudes. Now, I want you to notice these Beatitudes, a couple more general comments, and we'll look at the specifics of the first one. These are all paradoxical. That is to say, they appear on the surface to be somewhat contradictory. Look at the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven speaks about riches, so he's saying blessed are the poor, they'll be rich. You notice the paradox. The poor are rich. In the second one, the mourners are comforted. In the third one, the meek become the prominent. In the fourth one, the hungry and the thirsty become the filled. You see, they, they seem to be contradictory in that sense or paradoxical. They are a series of opposites. And the Lord will show us as we go through how those opposites relate to one another. Now, there's a wonderful sequence in these Beatitudes. Would you look again? Let's follow them just to get the sequence. The first step in blessedness is to admit your spiritual poverty. Okay, look at verse 3. The first step is to admit that you are poor. Now, that will lead you to a right attitude toward your what? Your sin. That's the idea. So true happiness begins with a right attitude toward sin. Now, once you understand your sin, that will lead you to the second one. Blessed are they that mourn. When you have a right attitude toward sin, it will cause you to mourn. And that indicates a right attitude toward God. Because you know you've offended God and you're sorry about that. 
Now, mourning over your sin and developing a right attitude toward God will lead to meekness. And that is to say a sense of unworthiness. Not only are you spiritually bankrupt, but you're unworthy of anything because of your sin. And out of your sense of unworthiness and out of the sense of emptiness comes a seeking for divine righteousness. And that's the fourth one, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And that will manifest itself, notice in verse 7, in mercy, verse 8, in purity, and verse 9, in peacemaking. And when you are a person who is merciful, pure, and peacemaking, you're going to affect the world negatively. You understand that? The world can't handle that. So as soon as you show a person in society who is pure and merciful and peacemaking, that person is going to receive hostility from the world. So verse 10 says they will persecute you, they'll revile you, they'll accuse you falsely. And in verse 12 wraps it up by saying, but you can rejoice. Why? Because you know you're right with God and you have the happiness that he promised to give. So there's a real sequence here and we'll work our way through it. Let's begin with verse 3 then. Look at the first beatitude together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, why does Christ begin with this? Listen carefully. He begins with this because it is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian. And all other characteristics in spiritual life are built on this one. The fundamental characteristic of all Christian living is this first Poverty of spirit attitude. The point is, you can't be filled by God until you're emptied of yourself. You cannot receive the gold of God, as someone says, until you open your hand and let the dirt out. And what the Lord is saying here is, look, the first thing you have to realize if you're going to have true happiness is that you're bankrupt spiritually, okay? That you have no resource that you possess nothing to offer God. All your righteousness, said Isaiah, is what? Filthy rags. And that's a term in the Hebrew meaning menstrual cloth. A very, very vivid term. Everything you bring to God is filthy rags. You have nothing. And that's where everything begins. It begins with the emptying of self-confidence. It begins with the emptying of the idea of self-improvement, of self-righteousness, which was so basic to the society of that time and is even fought for in the society of today. Poverty of spirit is the foundation of all Christian graces. And you might as well expect fruit to grow without a tree as you would expect any other spiritual virtues to grow unless your life is marked by poverty of spirit. This is a sine qua non. This is, a, this is the basic bottom line in all of Christian living. As long as you are not poor in spirit, as long as I am not poor in spirit, I am never capable of receiving grace. As long as I believe that I have something to offer to God, I cannot receive what He has to offer me. Isaiah said of Christ in Isaiah 61.1, this most wonderful statement, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he was speaking in messianic terms. He hath sent me 
And Christ re-preached this in Luke 4. He hath sent me to bind up. Do you remember who he was going to bind up? The brokenhearted. Until a person is brokenhearted over his spiritual state, he cannot be bound up. Until we are poor in spirit, Christ is never precious. Until we see our own wants deeply and profoundly, we never see his great value. But once we see ourselves as filthy rags, once we see ourselves as Zechariah the priest in the prophet of old, Zechariah, once we, Zechariah identifies the priest, we see ourselves clothed in garments of filthiness. Then we take the right steps. We, until we are poor, will never be rich. Poverty, in a real sense, gives us the kingdom, and that's the paradox. Losing our lives, we save them. Jesus said, whosoever would save his life must what? Must lose it. Now, why is this? It's kind of reminiscent of Samson. We saw from Samson that out of the carcass came the honey. The same thing is true. But why is this? Because of this basic principle spiritually. Pride is a curse. Pride is the damning sin. Pride must be broken at the very beginning. Proverbs 16:5 says, Cursed are the proud. And pride basically means that I feel I can do something for God. I feel I can bring something to God. I feel I can offer something to God. I feel I can commend myself to God in some way. I feel that I'm worthy of something from God because of who I am. But on the other hand, the only real way to come to God is in the sense, in the overwhelming sense, that you can bring nothing to God. Paul says, as touching the law, I was blameless. Pharisee, the Pharisee, Hebrew, the Hebrews, goes down the line of all of his credentials. But his testimony is this. I count all things like this manure. I have nothing to commend myself to God. You remember the church at Laodicea? Revelation 3, the church at Laodicea said, I am rich and have need of nothing. And what did the Lord do to that church? Spit it out of his mouth. And there are many people like that. So the beginning bottom line in true happiness, spiritual resources begin to flow out of this attitude of poverty in spirit. Now, what does it really mean? Let's talk about it. What does the term poor in spirit mean? Now, I want to remind you that it doesn't mean to be poor in terms of economics. The phrase in Luke 6.20 says, blessed are the poor. But you can't just take Luke's account and not compare it with Matthew's. We understand that when he said, blessed are the poor, he meant the poor in spirit. The composite of the gospel record gives us the intent of our Lord. And so it is the poverty of spirit. It isn't that you're blessed if you are poor in financial ways or in worldly ways. In fact, that would not be supported by the Scripture because there are many blessed of God who are very wealthy, even in the New Testament. Nicodemus appears to be a man of great wealth. So does Joseph of Arimathea. And there must have been many others who provided their homes for the church. Philemon must have been a very wealthy man. The centurion of Luke 8, 1 to 10 must have been a very wealthy man. The Bible is not saying that spirituality is equated to financial poverty. David, for example, testified that in all his years he had never seen the righteous begging bread. He had never seen God's seed forsaken, Psalm 37. In Paul's life, there was hunger and there was thirst, but he never begged. God always provided for him. So what do we mean, poor in spirit? Let me talk about the word for a minute. The word is tokas, 
And it's an interesting word. It, it basically means a shrinking from something or a shrinking back from someone. It, it, mean, it, it gets that idea of a beggar because a beggar was somebody who cowered in a corner in the darkness and sort of stuck out his hand. Literally, the term in some lexicons is translated to cringe like a beggar. So when it says poor in spirit, it isn't the idea of, of poor so that you can barely eke out an existence or poor so that you have to work hard to make your living. It is the idea of so poor you have to what? You have to beg. You have to beg. Classical Greek describes one who is reduced to beggary, one who crouches alone in a corner asking for alms and often including a sort of a wandering, roving around in wretched conditions because there are no resources for the basic necessities of life. They have no wealth. These who are tokas, they have no wealth, they have no position, they have no honor, they have nothing. They are absolutely without resources. There is another word, penace. Penace means to be so poor you can barely eke out an existence. Tokas means so poor you have to beg. This is poverty that demands begging. And that's really where we are, young people. I, I want you to understand that. You bring nothing to God, and neither do I. All we can do is put out a hand that is full of sin and plead for grace. Isn't that so? That's all we can do when we come to Christ. It is so humiliating to a man to be a beggar that very often beggars in that culture would cover their face. Or as I said a moment ago, they would sit in the shadows where perhaps they couldn't easily be recognized because they were ashamed to let even the giver of alms know who they were. But this is the poverty of spirit that's totally dependent on someone else's grace, someone else's kindness. It cannot even earn its own way. And this is a true diagnosis of man. This is where happiness begins. Now, it sounds like a sad beginning, but it's really where happiness begins. This is the true diagnosis of man. He is empty. He is poor. He is helpless. He cannot work to earn his own salvation. He is tokas, not panace. He needs mercy and grace from outside himself. And that's where happiness begins. With that life bankruptcy that says, I have nothing that I am destitute, beggarly, hopelessly dependent on God. We could literally translate this, happy are the beggarly poor ones. Now, isn't that contrary to our society? Our society would say, happy are the rich, happy are the famous, happy are the successful. Just the opposite. Happy are the self-sufficient, happy are the proud, happy are the macho, happy are the liberated. Notice it says poor in spirit. What does that mean? With reference to the spirit, that is internally rather than externally. And that's just the kind of person God is looking for. Do you realize that? Let me speak to that issue for a moment. This is the kind of person God is looking for. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 66, 2. But to this man will I look, and here's God's desire, to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembles at my word. Now, that's what God is looking for. You're here at the Master's College. You're probably here saying to yourself, I don't know what my future holds, but somewhere along the line, I want to serve God. What is he looking for? He's looking for someone 
who has a proper sense of their own spiritual bankruptcy, who realizes that in and of themselves they have nothing, and they bring to God a poor and a contrite spirit, and they tremble at his word for fear of the judgment of which they are worthy. Listen to Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is nigh unto them that have a broken heart and saves such as be of a contrite spirit. Now, contrite means a, a spirit that is aware of its own sinfulness and cries out for forgiveness. The Lord seeks those kinds of people. He is nigh to those kinds. Listen to Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices that please God, not not animals, the true sacrifices that please God, a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, thou wilt not despise. Now that's what God is looking for. Now let me hasten to add something. I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God wants people who are poor spirited in the sense that they lack enthusiasm. God save us from those people. I'm not saying that the Lord is, is looking for people who are lazy or quiet or indifferent or passive. No. He's looking for people who are excited and enthusiastic and aggressive, but who realize that in the spiritual dimension they are bankrupt. The Pharisees were intensely proud. They were counting on their own righteousness to save them and commend them to God. And when the Lord Jesus said this, he struck a literal fatal blow to the heart of the whole Pharisaic system because it was so contrary. Do you remember Luke 18, the publican and the, and the sinner? Do you remember that story? Two men went down to the temple to pray. One was a, a publican, high official. He went in and I mean, one was a Pharisee, the other was a publican, Pharisee being a high official religiously, the publican basically being a sinner. And what happens? The Pharisee prays thus with himself, I thank thee that I am not as other men, you know, not an ego trip. I'm not like everybody else. I tithe, I fast twice a day, so forth and so forth. And so he's, it's interesting, he's sort of praying with himself. It's almost like a soliloquy. And he's commending himself to God. And over in the corner is the publican beating on his chest. He won't even lift his face to look to heaven. And he's crying, Lord, be merciful to me. What? A sinner. And Jesus said, that man went home justified rather than the other. Now, that's not the way the world looks at religion. The world thinks the more externally religious you are, the more likely you are to get to heaven. That's not true. The more externally religious you appear, the less likely you ever are to meet the conditions of the kingdom of heaven. It's when you are bankrupt in your spirit and you will not so much as lift your face toward God because you know of your own unworthiness. It's reminiscent of the hymn writer who said, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. So Jesus is saying this, Blessed are the beggars in spirit. Blessed are the spiritual paupers, the spiritually destitute, the spiritually bankrupt who cringe and cower because of the shame of their sinfulness. Theirs is the kingdom. Reminds me of James 4.10 where James says, Humble yourselves in the sight of God and He will what? He'll lift you up. Humble yourselves in the sight of God and He'll lift you up. 
I'm afraid this is rather unpopular today. And I'm afraid even in the evangelical church it seems unpopular. Now we're so into celebrities and experts and superstars and rich and famous Christians. And there's nothing wrong with being blessed in those areas, but true blessedness comes from this spirit of humility. Now listen as I give you some illustrations of this. Jacob had to face his poverty of spirit before God could use him. You read sometime Genesis 32 and you'll find that he fought God all night in a wrestling, wrestling with God until finally God dislocated his hip. I mean, it's a bad choice of opponents, to be honest with you. On his part, to fight God, God dislocated his hip, put him flat on his back, and he said, I give, I give, I give, I can't do it alone. And the Bible says God blessed him. But it wasn't until God broke him that God blessed him. That's the analogy there. And then there was Isaiah, used wonderfully by God, used powerfully as a prophet of God in the, in the reign of Isaiah, who reigned for 52 years. And uh, Isaiah was a great and well-known prophet. And he was used, but he wasn't used significantly until God broke him. And in the vision of chapter 6, after the death of Isaiah, when he saw God in all his wonder, power, majesty, he saw his own sin. He said, I'm a man with a dirty mouth. I dwell among people with dirty mouths, as if to say I'm a filthy sinner. And at that particular point, God in his wonderful grace cleansed him, and he was useful. And then the Lord sent him to bring the message of salvation to the remnant. Gideon, you remember Judges, the book of Judges, chapter 6, that Gideon was used by God because he was a man who knew his own inadequacy. He says, Oh, my Lord, how shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. It was the recognition of his own inadequacy that was the key to his usefulness. And the Lord said to him in response to that sort of whimpering prayer, the Lord said, Gideon, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And then there was Job who really found out what it was to walk with God when he saw his own spiritual bankruptcy and repented in dust and ashes. Young people, what I'm saying, first of all, is this. The key to real blessing in life is humility. It is a spiritual humility. And by that, I don't mean you go around a, like a sniveling milk toast. I don't mean that. I don't mean you don't have any enthusiasm. I don't mean you don't have any character, any backbone, any courage. What I mean is that in the spiritual dimension, you know you're bankrupt. That was the spirit of Moses. So deeply did he feel his unworthiness for the task laid upon him. So conscious was he of his inadequacy and insufficiency that he cried out to God to be with him and show him his glory. It was the heart of David when he said, Lord, who am I that thou shouldst come to me? God, what are you doing communicating with me? It was the spirit of Peter, that aggressive, self-assertive, confident Peter who, when confronted with Jesus Christ and his own sin, said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man, Luke 5, 8. Go away. The Apostle Paul knew that in his flesh was no good thing, that he was a chief of sinners, a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and that everything he had was dung, and all things could be counted nothing but loss. He was not sufficient. His very strength was weakness. 
And so he was used by God. Let me tell you, an admission of that kind of weakness is not an easy thing. It takes great spiritual character. And I think it takes the work of the Holy Spirit in a willing heart. Maybe the hardest thing for you to ever do, hardest thing for me to ever do, is to admit my own spiritual bankruptcy and inadequacy. It is to say this, young people, it is to say, I can't. I can't. I feel God, in fact, I know God's called me to preach. And I can't tell you how many times I've said to God, I can't do that. I'm inadequate to that. I have to have your strength. And it is ever and always out of that sense of weakness. And I'm not setting myself up as the standard because there are times when I don't sense that weakness in its truest reality. But I'm saying that's the place where strength is found. That poverty of spirit, that absence of pride, that absence of self-assurance, that absence of self-reliance, that knowledge that we're nothing before God in ourselves. And again, I remind you, young people, I'm talking about the spiritual dimension here. If you're good at something that you do well, it's fine to be good at it, and it's fine to know you're good at it. And it isn't even necessarily a sin to say, I realize I'm good at that, and I thank God for that. But in the spiritual dimension, apart from God, we're good at absolutely nothing. Nothing. St. Augustine, before his conversion, was proud of his intellect and his knowledge, and it held him back from ever believing in Christ. And only after he was emptied of his pride did he find God's true wisdom. The great Martin Luther entered a monastery in his youth, and his whole goal in entering a monastery was to find salvation through personal piety. He wanted to devote himself to good works and holy deeds. And he came out of that monastery with an absolutely overwhelming sense of failure. And it was only after he realized his own bankruptcy that he discovered in the Word of God that the just live not by self-righteousness, but the just live by what? By faith. It has been written, but though I cannot sing or tell or know the fullness of thy love while here below, my empty vessel I may freely bring. O thou who art of love the living spring, my vessel fill. I am an empty vessel, no, not one thought or look of love I ever to thee brought. Yet I may come and come again to thee with this the empty sinner's only plea. Thou lovest me. How wonderful. The sum of this great truth is that the first principle of the Sermon on the Mount is that we cannot by ourselves fulfill the standards that God has for us. And we have to recognize that. We have to own that. If you're still trying to make it on your own, to be religious, to be spiritual, to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you can't make it. God's standards cannot ever be achieved by human strength even religious effort. The standard was too low in Jesus' day. That's why he said, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom. In fact, he said, if you're not perfect, Matthew 5:48, you can't even belong. And when we have to look at that standard, we say, I can't make it. I can't make it. Only in Christ can we receive the strength to be what God wants us to be? Now, what is it that's promised to those who are poor in spirit? Look again, would you, at verse 3? The kingdom of heaven. Really, I don't want to get into too much detail here. That means the rule of Christ. 
That means the rule of Christ. To all who stoop before God with the empty hands and hearts of a beggar, they receive the rule of Christ with all its rewards and all its blessings. And there is a millennial aspect to that in the future thousand-year kingdom of Christ. And there is an eternal aspect of that in the new heavens and the new earth wherein we will dwell forever in righteousness with Him. But there is a present aspect as well. I have the kingdom, and you do too if you've come in bankruptcy and received the provision of Christ. That kingdom is now, for I am now a part of that group of people who are kings and priests unto God. And I already dwell, as it were, in the spiritual dimension. I already walk and move in the heavenlies. We have kingdom blessing now. We have the grace of the kingdom. We have the power of the kingdom. We have the wisdom of the kingdom. We have the sovereignty of the king over us. We have the supply of the kingdom, the riches of the kingdom, the treasures of the kingdom. And what that really means is salvation. Salvation comes to people who are bankrupt in spirit, and that's where the Beatitudes begin. And then it follows up. Once we've come to Christ, we must maintain that same sense of spiritual bankruptcy that draws on the resources that God provides in Christ, and never do we come to the place where we think we have them in ourselves. Now, if I can draw this into your Christian life and bring to a conclusion, I want, I want to focus on several things. How do you learn self-denial in your life? Listen to this carefully. How do I become poor in spirit? Let's say, and I believe this, if you're a Christian, there was a time in your life when you were poor in spirit. There was a time when you recognized your bankruptcy. There was a time when you saw your sin. There was a time when you were broken over that sin. There was a time when you reached out. But maybe you've drifted a little away from that. And you might be asking the question, how do I really experience that bankruptcy of spirit? Or maybe you've never really come to Christ. I don't know. There may be some among us yet who have not. Let me suggest now, what's necessary to self-denial. One is look at God. Look at God. Look at God. Read His Word. Face His person. Look at Christ. The more you see God, the more you see Christ, the more helpless you're going to see yourself. You see, it's, the only time we're ever proud is the time when we haven't been looking at God. If we look at other people, we're going to be proud because we'll find other people less, than, less on the scale of 1 to 10 than we are, right? You can always find someone who's worse than you are. But as soon as you begin to focus on God, that becomes an impossibility. Look at God. Secondly, if you want to experience the humility of self-denial, secondly, starve the flesh. Starve the flesh. What do you mean by that? I mean, avoid the things that, that feed the flesh. Avoid the things that feed your pride and feed your ego. And starve out the flesh. I'm amazed how many books there are in Christian bookstores now on how to be successful, how to be fulfilled, you know, how to have self-esteem. And I, I, I've looked long and hard to find one on how to empty yourself of yourself. How to be a self-denying Christian. You won't find books like that. But that's the way to true blessedness. And thirdly, I would say pray. Beggars have to ask. 
If there, as you look at your life, there's an absence of humility, then look to God, for you'll find humility in seeing who you are compared to Him. And secondly, starve out the flesh. Don't let the flesh find a place to boast. And thirdly, pray as the sinner prayed, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then lastly, I want to just suggest how you can know if you really are poor in spirit. And this is the heart of everything. In the last five minutes, I want you to... If you don't write anything down but this, write this down. How will you know if you have poverty of spirit? How will you know if you have true humility as a believer? Point number one. Self will cease to be your concern, your major concern. Self will cease to be your major concern. In Psalm 131.2, the psalmist made a great statement, very profound. He said, my soul is like a weaned child. You will be weaned away from yourself. True humility, true humility is marked by a person who is not self-absorbed. They are cut off from self. That's not a concern to them. That's not a concern. What happens to you, how successful you are, how popular you are, how famous you are, how whatever you are, whether you get your needs met and your wants fulfilled, that's not the issue with you. A person who has poverty of spirit, who has true spiritual humility, is a person who is not preoccupied with self. Secondly, you can know that you have true humility of spirit if you are lost in the wonder of Christ. If you are lost in the wonder of Christ, show me the Lord and it is sufficient. When your whole life revolves around the vision of Christ, when you live and long to know Christ, to know Him more intimately, to love Him more deeply, to know His heart and mind more comprehensively, that's when you know that you're experiencing true humility. So you will be drawn away from yourself and you will be lost in the wonder of Christ. Thirdly, you'll never complain about your situation. You will never complain about your situation. Why is that? Because a truly humble person knows they deserve what? Nothing. So whatever you have, you see as a gift of grace. So you never complain about your situation. You have no wants, you deserve none. In fact, the deeper the hole you're in, the sweeter the grace of God. And when you lack everything, let's say you lacked everything, you would then have no distractions. And you would be all the Lord's. So you can check your humility by seeing whether or not you're content not to complain no matter what your situation is. Fourthly, a truly humble person will see the excellencies of other people and the weaknesses of his own life. True humility is marked out by a sense of one's own weakness and an eagerness to point out others' excellencies. Beautiful characteristic. He sees no greatness in himself, but he is always prone to see beauty and greatness in other people. It's the opposite of the critical mind. Fifthly, a truly humble person will spend much time in prayer. You will spend much time in prayer. You know why? Because a beggar needs to spend a lot of time begging. 
And it's when you know you're a beggar that you know you have to go back to the begging process. Of one who is poor in spirit knocks very frequently at heaven's gate and will not let go until he's blessed. Young people, it's really sad in our society how we've lost this. In our Christian society, we've lost the sense of, of this kind of prayer. So how do you know whether you're really poor in spirit? Have you been weaned away from yourself? Are you lost in the wonder of Christ? Do you never complain about your situation? Do you see only your own weaknesses and only the excellencies of others? And do you spend much time in prayer? Fair questions. And a good inventory to find out where your life is. And one last one. A person who is poor in spirit will always have a praising heart. Always a praising heart. Always praising God for grace. Saying with Paul, the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant. 1 Timothy 1.14 The poor, when they are filled, are full of thanks. Are full of thanks. Well, how do we measure up to the standard of true happiness that our Lord gives us? Let's bow in prayer. I want to ask you this morning to just pray in your own heart rather than have me pray for you. What I've told you this morning out of the Word of God is not my word. May God silence my mouth if I ever speak my word in the place where His word is to be spoken. It's His word. Your response is not to me. It would be nice that you should respond positively to me, but that's not the point. Your response is to God. This is His word. Can you in all integrity of heart Say to the Lord Jesus Christ in the quietness of your own silent prayer, Lord Jesus, I want to be this kind of person. I want to be poor in spirit so that I can experience all the wonder of your kingdom. I acknowledge my sinfulness and my spiritual bankruptcy, and I acknowledge that I must depend on your resources for everything. Make me that humble person. I trust that's your prayer this morning. Thank you, Father, for this beginning to a wonderful day. And help us to realize that it is in this beginning that we take the first major step toward the satisfied life the fulfilled life, true blessedness. Help us to know that we can obey your word and be promised all good things. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.